In a great story, the only thing better than a good hero is a good villain. For you movie buffs, I mean, think about it. Can you imagine Lord of the Rings without Sauron? Could you imagine Star Wars without Darth Vader? Could you imagine Harry Potter without Voldemort or Jurassic Park without the Velociraptors? The only thing better than a great protagonist is a great antagonist, a great villain, one who really makes the hero shine in contrast. In Esther chapter 3, we get to meet a really good bad guy, a man who is just the, the quintessential villain. And naturally, he stirs up the main conflict of the book of Esther. So let's get introduced to this villain and see how the conflict unfolds. Turn with me to Esther chapter 3. And as you're turning there, before we get into the word, let's go to the author of the word in prayer. Father, what we've sung, it's our prayer. We want to behold our God as we come to this passage in your word. Help us to behold you in all your glory. As you've read in the scripture earlier, help us to fear you and stand in awe of your name. And we know that whatever was written in former days, including this book of Esther, it was written for our instruction. So that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So please, Lord, instruct us, encourage us, give us endurance, give us hope. You're the God of all hope. So please fill us with joy and peace as we trust in you, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit and through this passage, we may abound in hope. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. So the conflict in chapter 3, it unfolds in three levels. We'll begin by looking at the ancient conflict, the conflict that's playing out in the Persian Empire in Esther chapter 3. And then we'll zoom out and we'll look at the cosmic conflict that runs from Genesis to Revelation, of which Esther 3 is just one piece. And then finally, we'll zoom back in and consider our present conflict that we're experiencing here and now. So first, let's look at the ancient conflict that, that's breaking out in Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. 
But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This chapter begins with the king promoting a man named Haman to the second in command of the most dominant superpower on earth at that time, the the Persian Empire, of which we've heard so much about over the last few weeks. The king was the royal head of state, and Haman was now functionally the head of government as the, the prime minister or the grand vizier. And the king commanded all the other government officials to to bow down and to pay homage, to pay respect to Haman. But one of them refused, Mordecai, the the Jew. Now we're not told why Mordecai refuses to pay his respect to Haman. It's interesting. Bowing in this way was not an act of idolatrous worship like we might initially think it is. It was more like a modern salute, a show of respect to a superior. See, our minds might go to the book of Daniel, also set in uh, exile, and they were called to you know, bow down to an idol and worship it, and they couldn't do that. But this is different. Throughout the Bible, we see David bowing and paying his respect to King Saul, or Abraham bowing to Melchizedek and paying his respects. It's like a salute, a show of respect for a superior. So we want to ask, along with the men in verse 3, Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? But we're not given an answer. We aren't told exactly why Mordecai refused to do this, though I do think there's a a clue in the text that we'll see in a few moments. (laughs) The narrator doesn't tell us whether this was morally right or wrong. He makes no comment either endorsing or condemning Mordecai's actions. But what we are told is Haman's response. He was furious. He was so furious that he wanted to kill not just Mordecai, but Mordecai's people, the Jews, all of them. And not just a certain ethnicity, but the covenant people of God. All of them were to be killed every single one of them. And the plot is summarized in verse 13. The plan was to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. This was a Holocaust-level threat. This was premeditated genocide. The goal was the complete annihilation and total extinction of God's people. So Haman starts to set his plan in motion in verses 7 through 11. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. 
that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Haman wanted his plan to be executed with perfection. So he went to what was probably the the, the kind of pagan soothsayers who helped him pick the perfect start date through casting lots that were called pure. And the word pure was just a Persian word for dice. So the fate of God's people literally came down to a dice roll. But thankfully, as Proverbs 16 verse 33 tells us, the lot is cast into the lap or the dice is rolled but it's every decision is from the Lord. And as we've seen before, even when God's providence is veiled, he is a very present help in times of trouble. In Esther, his providence is subtle and hidden, but it's everywhere. This book is filled with the -the behind-the-scenes sovereignty of Yahweh. And that's exactly what we see in verse 7. As they're casting lots, the day that's chosen is the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And the current month at this time is the month of Nisan. So to put that in our contemporary calendar, Haman begins his plotting in April, while the start date selected is March of the following year. So God, in his steadfast love for his people, and in his subtle yet unstoppable sovereignty, gave his people 11 months. And think about it. This could have happened the following week. It could have happened immediately. God gave them 11 months, not for them to prepare them. They were utterly helpless. These 11 months were for God to bring deliverance for his people and to glorify his name among the nations, which he would do. But now that Haman, he had the the perfect start date on his agenda, or or so he thought, he presented his idea to the king. In verses 8 through 11, Haman slanders God's people. He paints them in the worst possible light with lies and half-truths. He says, in effect, king, there's a group of people, and they're a real problem. They have other laws. They don't keep your law, which was only half-true. They had the law of Moses. (laughs) They're a political threat. They are extremely dangerous to the agenda of your regime. And worst of all, they're everywhere. They're in every province. They're under every nook and cranny. We need to deal with this threat. And I have just the plan. To seal the deal, Haman offered the king a bribe of 10,000 talents of silver. That's... 375 tons of silver. This was the equivalent of around 60% of the entire annual tax revenue of the Persian Empire. It was an absolutely massive bribe. So naturally, the, the vain, greedy monarch accepts. And he did accept. I know he says, oh, the money's given to you. That was a formality in the ancient world. It's like saying, oh, you keep the money. No, oh, you keep the money, right? He's taking the money. So in exchange, he handed Haman his 
signet ring, which gave him the authority to legislate his scheme into law through an unbreakable executive order, all done officially in the name of the king. So now that he had the king's buy-in, Haman starts putting his scheme into action in verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Haman gets the decree put into writing. It gets translated into different languages and sent throughout the empire. Dispatch riders rode to every province with a bone-chilling message to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. It's like the Black Riders in the Lord of the Rings riding into town as harbingers of doom against the people of God. The evil scheme of Haman and the poor leadership of the king threw the capital city of Susa into confusion, as we see in the, the final verse. But Haman and the king are calmly eating and drinking. This genocidal maniac... This immoral monstrosity of a man, he celebrates his victory with some fine dining. This power-hungry, bloodthirsty tyrant sits down to eat and drink. So I want us to ask, how did Haman get this way? How did he become such a horrible person, such a monster? But the truth is, Haman wasn't a monster. He was a man. He was a person, just like the rest of us. But he was a man who had let the roots of sin grow deeper and deeper into his life, into his heart. No one starts off thinking they're going to commit genocide one day. But slowly, over time, the snowball effect of sin, the cumulative effect of sin, changes you. And like Haman, it can change you into a monster of a person. C.S. Lewis once said this, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, <laughs> into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. So what is the trajectory of your life? 
What direction are you traveling in? What, what ultimate goal are you progressing towards? Where are the roots of sin growing deeper and deeper into your life that need to be pulled up by the roots? The choices that you make right now, the habits that you cultivate right now, the virtues that you pursue or that you ignore right now are setting you on a trajectory. And if you're not swimming upstream towards the Lord, you will naturally be taken downstream away from Him. So what kind of person are you becoming? Let Haman's life serve as a stark warning for each one of us. As it's been said, sin will take you farther than you ever expected to go. It'll keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. It'll cost you more than you ever expected to pay. At this point in our narrative... Things are not looking good for God's covenant people. Things look hopeless. Things look bleak. There is no humanly possible way for God's people to rescue themselves. And that's exactly the point. And I think it shows us the primary purpose of this third chapter of Esther. That even when things look bleak, we can hope in the God who delivers his people. Even when things look bleak, we don't hope in ourselves. We hope in the God who delivers his people. And we know the rest of the story. Right? That God will amazingly deliver his people from this seemingly hopeless situation. But I think there's a lot more going on here than just this one specific conflict in Esther. This is just one battle in a much larger war. This is an individual skirmish in a far greater campaign. <laughs> so let's zoom out from the ancient conflict and consider the cosmic conflict. And the text gives us a clue that something bigger is going on. Chris hinted at this last week. In verse 1, the enemy of the Jews is introduced as Haman the Agagite. Everyone say Agagite. Well done. You're speaking excellent Hebrew. There's a lot of ites in the Bible, isn't there? The, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, and on and on it goes. And as we read about them, our eyes can start to gloss over, right? But we need to pay attention. Because in this case, this is the only time in the entire Bible where anyone is identified as an Agagite. This is not the name of any known group of people in the ancient world. <laughs> so why is Haman designated as an Agagite? Well, if you think back through the Old Testament, you might remember a man named King Agag. In 1 Samuel 15, the first king of Israel, Saul, he is commanded by Yahweh to go and completely destroy the longtime enemies of his people, the Amalekites, who were led by King Agag. And in the battle, Saul won the victory, but he didn't completely destroy the Amalekites as he was commanded to do. He plundered the spoil and kept some for himself, and he left alive King Agag. For this very reason, the kingship was taken from Saul and given to David. But remember, in Esther chapter 2, verse 5 from last week, 
Mordecai is identified as a descendant of Kish. And who was the son of Kish? Saul. So here we have Haman, the descendant of King Agag, and Mordecai, the descendant of King Saul. This was an old hostility. There were centuries of bad blood between them. This was like the grudge match of the ages. And I think this explains why Mordecai wouldn't bow. He couldn't bring himself to bow before that Agagite, to pay homage to that air of ancient hostility against God and against his people. He couldn't do it. And I think this also explains why Haman didn't just want to kill Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people. This wasn't just an overreaction at a personal offense. There was covenantal conflict simmering under the surface, and it was finally brought to a boiling point. Mordecai's refusal to bow was just the spark in the powder keg. But what if the conflict goes further back than Mordecai and Haman, and even further back than King Saul and King Agag? You see, Agag was the king of the Amalekites, and Even further back in Exodus chapter 17, right after Israel was delivered from Egyptian slavery in the Exodus, they were harassed and attacked by the Amalekites. And in response, God promised to blot out their memory from under heaven. You can see Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. But what if the conflict goes even deeper? It goes even further back. The Bible is a story of conflict. It's a story of conflict that runs from Genesis to Revelation. That runs from the garden to the new Jerusalem. From the fall of man to the final judgment. When the tempter seduced our first parents in the garden, God spoke to him in Genesis 3.15 saying, I will put enmity or hostility or conflict between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and he shall bruise, you shall bruise his head and he shall bruise your heel. This was God's declaration of war against the true enemy of his people, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. And the entire biblical story is the ensuing conflict between the kingdom of light and the domain of darkness. Between the children of God and the children of the devil. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Satan, he knows the promise of Genesis 3.15. He fears the promise and he hates the promise. So he wants to stop the promise. He knew there was a promised one coming, a Messiah, a conqueror, a deliverer. He knew the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, the true and better Adam was coming to crush his head. So he tried desperately to stop it. The story of the Old Testament can be thought of as one long attempt, one long vain attempt by Satan to stop the coming of Jesus. And Esther is just one example of this. So where is Jesus in Esther? He's right here. The Christ was promised to come through the line of Abraham and Judah and David. And if Haman's plot succeeds, if all the Jews are killed, then that royal messianic line will be dissolved and the Messiah will never come. 
That ancient serpent is the true enemy. Haman wanted to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. But behind him is the evil one who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But thankfully, God is in complete control of the full span of human history. He's in complete control of every detail of this universe. And he really enjoys toying with his enemies. God loves to stack the deck against himself, to create seemingly impossible situations so that he can bring about a surprise, last-minute, jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring reversal and victory. And so time after time, Yahweh delivers his people from near annihilation. And in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, born of woman, so that he might destroy his enemies once and for all and bring true and ultimate deliverance to all of his people. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is preserved throughout the Old Testament. It's preserved through the conflict of Esther, and it comes to fruition in the cross of our Lord Jesus. On the cross, Satan bruised the heel of Christ. That is, he, he wounded Jesus, but not fatally. Right? Even though Jesus died, praise God, he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he arose in victorious, indestructible life. And we know that. But Satan was hopelessly unaware. The very cross that Satan used to try to destroy Jesus became the means of his own destruction. His plan backfired. His scheme rebounded. And as Jesus' heel was bruised, the serpent's head was crushed. You can picture it this way. As the, as the nail pierced through the feet of Jesus on the cross, at the same time, that very same nail skewered the head of that old snake. Through his crucifixion, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers over this present darkness, and put them to open shame. Through the empty cross and through the empty grave, the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered. Jesus is the ultimate sin bearer, the dragon slayer, the skull crusher, and the snake killer. And on the cross, through his humiliation and through his suffering, he defeated all the enemies of God's people. He defeated sin and Satan. He defeated death and the grave. He defeated the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in his resurrection glory, in his exaltation, he is ruling and reigning until every last one of his enemies is footstooled beneath his pierced feet. And we're invited into this. It's not just that Satan is crushed beneath Jesus' feet. He shares that with us. Romans 16 verse 20 says this. May the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. Soon. Under your feet. Jesus has won the victory and we get to share in that victory. He has bound the strong man and we get to plunder his house. This world no longer belongs to Satan. It belongs to Jesus. He bought it with his blood and we're called to take it back to disciple the nations, to extend the kingdom. Jesus promised that the gates of hell 
would not prevail against his church, which means we're on the offensive. We're the ones storming the very gates of hell and they don't stand a chance at stopping us. Attacking, we are, we are attacking the darkness with the light of Christ. But this happens in seemingly ordinary ways. When you share the gospel, when you care for people in need, when you show hospitality, when you endure hardship and pursue peace, when you pray, when you gather for worship, all of it is an assault against the brittle kingdom of darkness that's already defeated and fading away. Every enemy will be made a footstool for Christ our King. And one day, he will return to bring those already defeated foes to a complete and utter end. He will purge sin and evil and darkness and brokenness from this entire universe. Death, the final enemy, will be put to death and he will banish the grave forever, bringing never-ending resurrection, new creation life to his people. He will cast Satan and his followers into the fiery lake and his kingdom will finally come on earth as it is in heaven. But we are a people who live in the time between the times. We live between the two advents of Christ, between his resurrection and his return, between the inauguration of his kingdom and its final consummation. We live in the tension of the already not yet. Therefore, we find ourselves in the same conflict described in Scripture. The battle in Esther took place around 500 years before the cross, and our battle is 2,000 years after the cross, but we're engaged in the exact same cosmic war. So finally, let's zoom back in and think through our present conflict in our day and age. Mordecai, Esther, the Jewish people, they were living as exiles in Persia. And we, just like them, we live as Christian exiles in this world. The Jewish exiles, they had a fierce enemy. And we have the exact same enemy in our exile. And thankfully, there's a whole book of the New Testament dedicated to helping us faithfully navigate our time in exile for Christ. It's the letter of 1 Peter, which, by the way, I would just suggest to you, read the book of Esther alongside the book of 1 Peter. It's eye-opening and so helpful. But Peter says that this is our identity in the world. We're sojourners, strangers, pilgrims, resident aliens, exiles. And that's just the way God intends it. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Read a few verses from 1 Peter chapter 4 together. First Peter 4, verses 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In these verses, Peter is calling us to embrace the tension. To lean into the conflict, not to avoid it. Which I think is exactly the point of Esther chapter 3. Mordecai embraced the tension, the antithesis, the battle. And I think this should be one of our main takeaways. Right? Whether he should have bowed or he, he, he shouldn't have, that's up for debate. But Mordecai, he didn't avoid the conflict. He embraced it. He leaned into it. So brothers and sisters, when trials come, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't set yourself up for disappointment. This is what life in a fallen world looks like for God's people. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. I love the old King James here. Think it not strange. We've heard a lot of talk over the last few years about the need to adjust to a new normal. Well, when you become a Christian, you get a new normal. Trials, enemies, insults, difficulty. And it's really not new at all. This is an old normal. This is the normal Christian life. But we live in a time which thinks that if conflict arises, you must be doing something wrong. The problem must be with you. Sometimes even within the church, we think if you're making people feel uncomfortable and you're stepping on toes, oh, stop that, stop that. But the Bible teaches the exact opposite. We should expect conflict if we're going to live faithfully as Christians in this present evil age. But Peter wants to make sure that, that this difficulty it comes from actually following Jesus. He says, don't suffer as an evildoer or a meddler. That is, if you're persecuted for being a jerk, that has nothing to do with Jesus. That's not Christian persecution. You should just repent and stop being a jerk. But, he says, if, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. Remember back in Acts chapter 11, they were first called Christians in Antioch, and it was a derogatory term. It was a slur used against them. But the early Christians adopted it as a badge of honor. That's why we're called Christians. They were privileged to suffer for the name of Christ. And Peter is calling us to embrace that tension, to lean into the conflict. So, Christian, don't blend into your surroundings. Don't be a cultural chameleon who camouflages into the godless society around you. Don't assimilate into the gray areas, into the mushy middle of this world. No, it, embrace your exilic identity. And I love how Mordecai is referred to throughout the book of Esther. 
He's not just Mordecai. He's Mordecai the Jew. Mordecai the Jew. And it's the same with us. We're not just, you're not just John. You're John the Christian. You're not just David. You're David the Christian. So lean into the tension. If you're insulted, or you're laughed at, or you're disregarded for being a follower of Jesus, don't cower, don't blush, don't get embarrassed, embrace it. Accept their mockery as a badge of honor. So think about this. Where are you tempted to be embarrassed, to conceal your identity as a Christian, to blend into the culture around you? Where do you feel the pressure to avoid conflict? Maybe even to be ashamed of the gospel, to cave into the pressure of opposition. Where are you tempted to justify compromise with the world? And where are you standing strong? But you need encouragement. You need to be shored up. You need daily strength and help. The truth is, we all need to embrace our identity as exiles. We need to live for Christ not just in our private life, not just behind closed doors in our homes and in our churches, but we need to live for Christ out there. We need to live for him in the public square, unashamed, unembarrassed, with the joy of the Lord as our strength. That's exactly where Peter goes in verses 13 and 14. Look at him again. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says rejoice. But we want to say back, Peter, you're telling us to expect suffering, fiery trials, and yet you tell us to rejoice. How is that even possible? Well, one way, I think, is just through this glorious benediction in verse 14. Peter says, you are blessed, weary Christian, because the spirit of the glorious God rests upon you. Even when everyone else is against you, he is for you. Even when everyone else abandons you, he will never leave you or forsake you. Even when the world frowns at you, his smile is ever upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, suffering Christian. And not only that, but just as we share in the sufferings of Christ, now we can rejoice because we will also share in his glory when he finally returns. That's the pattern of the gospel. Suffering leads to glory. Exile leads to conquest. Death leads to resurrection. Momentary defeat leads to final, ultimate victory. So we rejoice in that great hope. We rejoice in the final victory that's been promised to the people of God, to us. We know the end of the story. The bad guys lose. The good guys win. Because Jesus always wins. And one day, one day his glory will be revealed and like the rising of the sun, the darkness will be scattered. All of his enemies will be vanquished. All of his people will be victors. 
So Christian, rejoice and be glad in the coming glory and final victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ever-compassionate, all-conquering King of Kings. Remember, even when God's providence is veiled, He is a very present help in times of trouble. Even when things look bleak, even when the times look hopeless, even when the world seems to be against us, we can hope in the God who delivers His people. He has delivered us. He is still delivering us. And one day he will deliver us fully, freely, and forever. May his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Pray that you would lead us in rejoicing. Rejoice as we are even called to suffer for your name. Help prepare us now. Help prepare our hearts to embrace the conflict you've called us into. But give us confidence in the victory of your kingdom, in the potency of your gospel, in the power of your spirit. Fill us with hope, not in ourselves, but in you, the God who delivers his people, the God who wins the victory, the God who raises the dead. Help us to hope in you. And we ask this for the glory of your great name, in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.